with Robohub, the podcast for news and views on robotics. Hi and welcome to the Robohub podcast. In today's episode, we take a closer look at how microscale robots could potentially be used in human surgery. Having to have surgery at all is not exactly pleasant and recovery from traditional types of surgery with large open wounds can be difficult and long. A more recent surgical technique called minimally invasive surgery uses tiny cuts in the skin or no cuts at all rather than the large cuts often needed in the traditional surgery. And this type of minimal surgery can help patients have shorter hospital stays and quicker recovery times with far less pain and discomfort. At the University of Toronto in Canada, Assistant Professor Eric Diller is working on wireless microscale robots that could ultimately make several types of surgery even less invasive. He spoke to our interviewer Audro about how these microscale robots are designed and controlled and how they're made, as well as when we might see this technology in the operating room. Hi, welcome to RoboHub's podcast. Good morning, happy to be here. Would you introduce yourself? My name is Eric Diller. I'm an assistant professor at the University of Toronto. Would you tell me about what motivates your work? I'm developing uh, robotic devices to go inside the human body, and we want to do this in a non-invasive way. So we want to make tiny robotic agents that can replace traditional surgical tools or diagnostic tools. So we want to make wirelessly driven robots. Mm -hmm. So what kind of operations could a robot start to do in the human body in a non-invasive way? Yeah, something we're interested in is uh, taking biopsy samples so going, for example, into the uh, GI tract and, and taking samples of tissue or intestinal contents, mm -hmm. things like this, that are um, often done with a colonoscope or something like this, which is um, rather invasive. So we'd mm -hmm. like to replace those with totally wireless, non-invasive tools. Mm -hmm. uh, and the other would be for surgery, so actually doing surgical tasks in a less From invasive From inside way. the person? Yeah, so a long-term vision might be, can we do totally wireless surgical tasks? So hmm. cutting tissue, uh, removing tissue using wireless tools. Yeah. And we're just working on the first steps towards that. Gotcha. What is that goal? Wait, so how large are these robots? Is that something I can swallow in a pill or like in general, what's the target size for these non-invasive robots? Yeah, it depends on the application, but typically we're talking smaller than a centimeter uh -huh. in size to be uh, less invasive than current uh, surgical or diagnostic tools. Is it one, one cubic centimeter? If it's a wireless device, then it's, it's very dependent on where you're going. Yeah. If it's something that's going to go into your intestines, then um, people can swallow a pill up to centimeter yeah. size, like gotcha. centimeter diameter pill. And then what makes it a robot? Um, like what actuation, what computation? This is a great question. In, in wireless micro-robots, as we, we call what we're working on, um, it's not very clearly defined what makes something a robot or what is not a robot. And mm -hmm. so uh, we often have discussions about this. I think a robotic system is something that has aspects of 
perception, action, and computation mm-hmm. in a, with a mechanical device mm-hmm. that's interacting with the environment. The, the thing that we send inside the body um, may not have all of that on board. Mm-hmm. It's hard to put... In such a tiny package. A yeah. small package. So it's hard to put uh, things like batteries, uh, integrated um, you know, circuitry that's powering onboard actuators like we would with, with large-scale robots. Yeah. So what kind of things can you feasibly do on one of these robots so that it's, um, in some sense, active? Yeah. Our approach usually is instead of trying to just cram on a bunch of components mm-hmm. and do good engineering to make them smaller and smaller, yeah. uh, which which is great uh, down to a certain size scale, maybe it's centimeter for a size. Lab, though. It's kind of a different model than, say, would be good in a research lab, maybe. Yeah, but, but so the approach Probably we take to, approach. to go even smaller and have a more scalable approach is to deliver power and signals wirelessly okay. and make the actual device that's going inside the body as simple as we can. And so it may not actually have any real actuators or computation on board. And so uh, mm-hmm. we like to use magnetic fields for controlling them. Yeah. So outside the body would be a set of magnetic coils or large permanent magnets that generate the fields. Mm-hmm. And we would have some other robotic control elements outside the body, like a computer controlling it and some feedback. Mm-hmm. In the lab, we often use visual feedback, but we're exploring using medical imaging. Oh, and so like all of these, and these kinds of using things, ultrasound or? would be oh. a top one, yeah. Gotcha. And so all of these elements together are, this is the robotic system with the perception, using medical imaging, computation off-board. Uh-huh. And then the thing that we're sending inside the body is really like the end effector of the robot. Yeah. And what kind of things can you do with this end effector? So you can do some sort of sensing in some sense. What kind of sensing can you do and what kind of actuation yeah, sensing is possible? Is, sensing is challenging. Um, I'm not working on sensing in, in my research group necessarily. We're, okay. we're, we're clearly interested in that. Um, it's hard to get wireless sensor measurements if you don't have Oh, that's why you use the external system like ultrasound to do some sort of sensing. Is it yeah, so, so medical imaging or ultrasound could give us... Mm-hmm. Like the location of our robot relative to the anatomy. Yeah. Um, other sensing we might want to do is things like like uh, physiological information, knowing mm-hmm. uh, chemical concentrations or, or things like this. And um, mm-hmm. there are lots of people working on this, making making tiny sensors that can uh, wirelessly send data out. Um, you can do this down to centimeter size scale. Okay, and you mentioned powering them. So you're using magnetic fields and you're um, controlling them, like moving them around maybe with those magnetic fields. Is that correct? Yeah, so uh, over the last uh, decade and, and more in the robotics community, mm-hmm. a number of people have figured out ways of, of using magnetic fields in a controlled manner for moving tiny devices. Mm-hmm. And so t- and really putting it into the framework of a mathematical robotics control problem so we can employ employ robotic control algorithms to mm-hmm. to move things. So, so yeah, we can pull small magnets around. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can even levitate them if it's in a liquid. Yeah. Uh, and at small sizes, some things get easier why, and some things get harder. Liquid? Why does it need, why do you need it to be in a viscous environment? Uh, well, no, many as opposed of, to air? You could do it in air, I suppose, right? So, yeah, we work in air for some things, but, but mostly if we're going inside the body, it's going to be in a, in a fluid environment. Yep. Um, so that's specific to the application. If we're talking about something like a, a micro factory where we're assembling small components uh, in the lab, then, then maybe it would be oh, in yeah. air. And, uh, and we are working on that as well. Huh. Gotcha. And then, so 
Now, you also mentioned powering them. Mm -hmm. So are you actually sending, like through induction or something, sending power to them so that they can do some small amount of computation on board or for the sensor to send something back? No, we don't do that. It's it's a compelling idea to, to power on board electronics. Human power and for movement. In and, and certainly that's possible. It doesn't scale well. Inductive yeah. powering doesn't scale well to the size of the, of the pickup coil. Yeah. Um, yeah, you would need, it becomes less efficient and you would need very high power mm -hmm. to deliver anything. And maybe a more a critical problem is once you generate current, what do you do with that? Mm -hmm. You may have to store it. Uh, batteries scale poorly to small yeah. sizes. And then you need to use it somehow. And there's not um, typically great actuator choices once our total robot small. size gets smaller than centimeter size. Uh, we get a lot of challenges. Hmm. And typically anything like an electric motor, um, or piezoelectric actuators uh, are, are can be scaled down to yeah, centimeter size. Okay, interesting. But you need a lot of volt. You need voltage to control the piezoelectric actuators, right? Yeah. So we don't work with that, but uh, but there are a number of groups making They're miniature not. robots at centimeter size, like insect ah. scale robots. Oh yeah. Um, but very different from something you'd put in the human body, maybe. Maybe yeah. concept. Maybe fundamentally similar, though. Yeah, I mean, the types of motions and types of... of um, that you have access to, given the technology. Sure, and uh, those uh, piezoelectrics require high voltage and specialized electronics mm -hmm. to provide that. Only a little deformation, too. But uh, maybe you want just a little deformation. Sure, it depends on what you're doing with it. That would make sense. So our approach instead is, is uh, instead of trying to cram some sophisticated actuators in the traditional sense, is to directly use the magnetic fields mm -hmm. to cause the motion. So not just moving not just pulling a magnet around, but actually inducing deformation on board. Think about like a, uh, having a gripper, which we apply a magnetic field, and the gripper will close. Okay. So how, how do you make something like that, where you have a gripper in the body and you're deforming it? Yeah, our approach is to use soft materials, flexible materials, mm -hmm. and we, we pattern a bunch of permanent magnets onto or into the material itself. Mm -hmm. And so each magnet which is on the, on the micro-robot, on the, this thing we're deploying, uh, will align with the field that we apply. Think about it like a compass needle. Mm -hmm. So if we put more than one of those on the same device, they'll all try to align mm -hmm. with the field that we apply. So if we embed these magnets in the right places and point them in different directions, mm -hmm. we can get these flexible structures or sheets, is often how we make them, to bend up into a desired uh, motion. Think mm -hmm. One motion that we use a lot is, is bending into a, a gripper. Mm -hmm. So each arm of our gripper, which could have four arms or a different number of arms, will have magnets embedded in each arm. Yeah. And each one, uh, the magnetization direction, the is north it, and south poles. Do you poles, mean arm kind of like a finger in the gripper? Yeah, like the fingers of the, of the ah, gripper. Ah, okay. Yeah. Gotcha, because I was wondering if like little hands come off of the <laughs> arms know. or something. But no, it's, it's the arms effectively surrounding whatever it is that you're trying to grab. That's right. Gotcha. So what can you do with grasping in the human body? Yeah, so we've, we've shown this, that we have the capability to fabricate devices in different geometries with different motions that come out, and, and grasping or, or closing around an object is one of them, which is uh, going to be useful for us. So mm -hmm. an adapted version of this could take biopsy samples. So actually uh, having basically sharp tips on the fingers of the gripper, uh, which could cut into the side of the intestinal wall and take a sample mm -hmm. of tissue or mucosal layer 
and actually collect it and hold it in the gripper. Um, depending on the application, we need to adapt it. And, and if you're going to be taking a biopsy sample, you want to take the sample and hold it mm -hmm. tightly and maybe seal it into a chamber. So for each application, we're, we're adapting the design. Uh, but the principle is the same of patterning magnets, which uh, result in these bending motions. Yeah. Now, how do you pattern magnets so that you... So, for example, if I'm imagining a small gripper in the body, and I can then imagine that it closes if you apply some magnetic field mm -hmm. in some direction to its orientation, I'm having a tough time imagining you being able to open it and move around or close it and move around. Yeah, so there's multiple motions we can do. We can, we can open and close our gripper. Yep. We can point it in a certain direction, yep. and we can move it in XYZ space. Yep. So we have all these degrees of freedom of our mechanism yeah. in robotics language, and, and actually we can control all of those independently. Interesting. How do you do that? And that's because the magnetic field actually has a lot of useful information encoded in it. Hmm. So the magnetic field is a vector field, mm -hmm. and so the field has a strength, Yep. And the strength of that vector field opens and closes our gripper. Mm -hmm. The direction of the vector field uh, orients the entire gripper, mm -hmm. so it points like a compass needle towards whatever direction we want. Yeah. And the last part is how we can pull a gripper around. Yeah. And basically, magnetic fields will pull a magnet towards regions of higher field strength. Yeah. So if the field is not uniform over the space, mm -hmm. that's how you can pull it around. And, and everyone has done this just playing with magnets you put one underneath the table, put a magnet on top of the table, and you can get them to follow each other. Mm -hmm. So you're basically you're you're distorting the shape of the field when you're doing that and, and pulling things. So mm -hmm. um, we can do that in a more uh, uh, mathematically rigorous way and, and do this precisely. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of people in the robotics community have developed the fundamentals that allow us to do this and control like a mobile robot. Gotcha. And then so I get the moving it around, but are you is it possible to close it and move it, or have it open and move it? Yeah, so we can control all of the states of this thing independently. Yeah. The motion, the orientation, and the open and close state are all actually independent. That's interesting. I don't quite understand how a magnetic field can do that with this. Or is it the, you can make a magnetic field that's quite complex, and that's how you do it? Yeah. Because I'm imagining just like... If I'm thinking of it like a vector field, I'm imagining all the vectors going in one direction, mm -hmm. and I'm imagining it effectively being a low signal operation that the thing will follow. Um, so if it's all going this way and there's some resistance, then it will tend to close. But maybe that's too simple and the folding might be more complicated, and that might allow you for more complex behavior. Yeah, so, so mathematically, the magnetic field actually has eight usable components to it. There's the okay. field components and then there's five, there's three field components and then there's five um, components of the field which tell you about the shape of the field. Okay. And so we can use all of these eight components of the magnetic fields basically as eight independent inputs to our system. Ah, okay. And if we can control all eight of those, us and others in the community have shown how you can build magnetic coils or banks of permanent magnets, which independently control all of those eight components of the magnetic field. Mm -hmm. Then we treat it as if those were eight motors driving our system. And, and you can use them as you like.
we can use them as we like. There may be coupling between them, but we yeah, can model I this. Imagine. I would imagine the coupling would make it difficult. Yeah, but we can model. But if you still get eight degrees of freedom, then you can do a lot with that. That's right. Interesting. And so, so we actually are doing a lot of work in how we can use all of these components independently to make useful mechanisms. And if you, I mean, you can do some smart coupling, I suppose. And if you do some clever coupling, then maybe you can get additional things even still. Would that be, or is it, are you capped at eight? Basically, is there eight operations you can do, or can you like, I don't know, mux them, <laughs> multiplex them, or something? So there are other larger? there are other tricks. If if, we th if we're treating our system like a, a, a quasi-static system, yeah. meaning we're not doing anything really clever with time time multiplexing signals or things like this, if we just think about slow motions of a mechanism. Yep. Then we can control eight independent degrees of freedom. Ah. If we allow ourselves to to do other clever things like apply fields in different sequences or use different magnetic materials uh, or exploit resonant responses of mechanisms, then we can actually get more controlled degrees of freedom. Interesting. And we've done some work in that. What does the external system look like that's generating these kind of arbitrary magnetic fields? Yeah, so it's basically we need uh, eight inputs to our system, so eight electromagnets mm -hmm. or uh, a number of, of permanent magnets which either we move using a robot arm, mm -hmm. mount a permanent magnet on the end of a robot arm, uh, or we can do things like mounting magnets on motors and mm -hmm. rotating them in place. So we build an array of these things, electromagnets or permanent magnets, and they surround the workspace. The closer we can get them, the more powerful the actuation is. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, actually we have some freedom in how we design these for a particular application. Is there any um, safety concerns with, I'm sure, but, like uh, exposing people to electromagnetics, that's not dangerous. Is it true, or is it dangerous at high levels? So like electromagnetic radiation can be dangerous, and it depends on the frequency and the amplitude. Mm -hmm. um, we're dealing with very low frequency magnetic fields, almost uh, almost DC mm -hmm. magnetic fields. So we can apply very high strength mm -hmm. magnetic fields at these low frequencies, and it's still safe. Uh, for example, an MRI machine. Is it very similar to an MRI machine? MRI machine applies much higher field strength than what we're using. Oh, uh, MRI machine has superconducting large bore yeah. magnetic coil, like super cooling, uh, and all this which, stuff. Which which yeah. is a uh, hundred times stronger uh, than the fields that we're applying in our work. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. How do you make a folding small robot? Yeah. So to be able to have these mechanisms that fold up, we need to pattern the magnets mm -hmm. inside the flexible device. So uh, previously we would, we would hand build these things and have rigid sections and where we put the magnets. Uh, so like when they're unfolded, how large? So we do these folding devices down to a um, like single, single millimeter size. And so, so in width and length basically? or Like it would fit into a millimeter size cube. Oh, if you folded it up. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, larger size. tends to be yeah. easier to fabricate, um, and, and so we need to embed these permanent magnets. And previously, we would we would have rigid sections where the magnet is, and then we would connect them with flexible hinges. Mm -hmm. And so we would use some uh, like molding or casting processes to to define the shapes. Mm -hmm. uh, bigger sizes, we can use three D printers to to print out a mold and then cast the the hinges and things into these. Um, Recently, we've developed a, a 3D printing technique where we can uh, use ultraviolet light to pattern the devices. This is like a stereolithography 3D printer. Mm -hmm. But as we're printing, our, our special 3D printer can also 
pattern the magnetization as it goes. So we have magnetic particles uh, distributed oh, throughout the whole very polymer clever. mix. And basically, we go pixel by pixel and cure them one at a time. So you basically align all of these magnetic particles, and that makes it so... Uh, so in general, they're scattered, so they kind of That's cancel right. each other out. That's right. And what you do is when you pass a magnet over it, while it's still in um, like a not formed state... In a liquid state, yeah. In a liquid state, they align, and then they harden later in that aligned position, and then they're more magnetic because everything else is kind of canceling its magnetic field. That's right. That's and then we go very, pixel very by clever. pixel, and we can pattern any arbitrary magnetization profile it's awesome. into the device. So, so we can uh, just design it in CAD and, and click print and have a, a gripper with, with three arms that fold up or a gripper with five arms that fold up or, or twist in different, in different ways. Mm-hmm. And then um, how do you print such small things on a 3D printer? Is it like an unbelievably specialized 3D printer for high resolution with this? So... Uh, commercial stereolithography 3D printers can get resolutions. Uh, and what is stereolithography? Stereolithography is just the idea of using light, light. patterned light, to harden materials. Ah, okay, so that's how you get it from liquid state to solid state. That's right. And many many commercial 3D printers work using light. Yep. And they'll have a, a thin layer of, of polymer, and then they'll shine light through a, a photo mask or using a a UV projector and, and only cure or, or harden the regions that you want to be part of your structure. Mm-hmm. And then they do it layer by layer to make a 3D, um, 3D part. Um, and so we've just adapted that and added the magnetic programming as we go. Gotcha. And they print very small things in general. They're, cap- they're capable of it? Yes, yeah, so a commercial 3D printer is getting uh, resolutions of 25 micrometers is, um, mm-hmm. is, uh, is possible and not so difficult for commercial devices. Yeah. We're adding magnetic particles, which tend to uh, be yeah. o- opaque and they block the light. Yeah. So that restricts our minimum oh. resolution. So our resolution is not as good as commercial uh, 3D printers. Gotcha. But we can make individual, basically, pixels yeah. or volume pixels of our device. Does it also, it makes it so you have to use weaker magnets, probably, because it's more distributed? Is it true? Or like the density of magnet in the, per volume is less in specific magnetic sections on your thing? Is it true? Yeah, that's true. So we want to, generally, we want to pack as much magnetic material as we can fit. Yes, but you don't want it to block out the light, and you also don't want it to make it so it's not possible to print. That's right. Or keep the structure. Yeah, if we put too many in, then it doesn't uh, flow. Yeah. The liquid won't flow into a thin layer anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's more of a paste, it becomes. Yeah, so you define that correct ratio. That's right. And, and, and it blocks the light. Um, and it also makes the device less flexible if we pack in a bunch of uh, magnetic particles. And, and magnetic particles are, are metal, so they're very stiff. It's basically like shavings that you use. The magnetic particles, they're basically shavings. Uh, it's from? a powder. Uh, magnetic powder. Gotcha. Okay. And there's there's some fundamental limits on the smallest magnetic particles that we can have that retain uh, the high strength and the permanent magnet properties, mm-hmm. um, which uh, will limit how small we can go. Yeah. Uh, but using some other materials, I think I think this is could be very scalable mm-hmm. down to um, uh, devices that are hundreds of micrometers in size. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe not as sophisticated kind of. Motions is what we're getting with our bigger devices. Yeah. Do you um, have to deal with some of the difficulties of 3D printers, like shearing? 
So where one layer on top of the next layer might slide off because it was not, I don't know, the, the, it, it doesn't adhere layer to layer as well. Do sure. you have to deal with things like this? Yeah, any of the challenges of, of 3D printing will be present with our method as well. Yeah. Uh, we've, we're at the point where we've done um, uh, single layers are, are great, and we've done a little bit with a few layers. Oh, so then you don't really have to do with sharing if you only use single layers. Yeah, okay. single layers, we can we can make these sheets and fold them up and get a lot of... I'm just wondering how the metal would affect shearing. It probably increases it a little bit, but... Um, that would probably be dependent on the material or which yeah. polymer you're using. Um, yeah, I'm just imagining slightly worse adherence between layers because of the metal file, I would, the particle. I would expect that to be a challenge, yeah. Definitely. Very cool. Okay, uh, where do you go from here? What's your direction now? So we're continuing to explore the basic fundamental limits of what we can make, mm -hmm. sort of refining our fabrication process, trying to make more precise, higher strength, and more sophisticated devices. Mm -hmm. We're also applying this to medical applications. So mm -hmm. one version of our method we're developing into surgical tools is, is another direction we're taking it. Um, those don't need to be as small. And uh, uh, strength of the tools, both to keep them from breaking as well as just actuation strength. If we're cutting tissue, we need a lot of force. Mm -hmm. um, so we're currently, uh, yeah. we're, we're currently manually assembling our surgical tools, which are driven by the magnetic fields for creating forceps for gripping tissue and small sur surgical scissors for cutting tissue driven by magnetic fields. Interesting. Okay. Um, and then what do you imagine is a timeline for this field to become something that you might see in hospitals and this kind of thing? I know it's a total guess, but just pause it. So some some applications of this are um, technically ready to go and are Which don't ones? require a lot of um, further development. Uh, for example, applying magnetic actuation to uh, swallowable capsules that go into the GI tract. There's there's commercial FDA approved uh, pill cams. These are basically a camera and a pill that a clinician can use to diagnose problems in your GI tract mm -hmm. in an non-invasive way. Uh, they can't control how the camera's pointing, they randomly go through. And so, for example, using magnetic field to just control what direction the camera's pointing, mm -hmm. um, that's much, I guess, an easier task than making mechanisms and cutting tissue and these kinds of things. Um, it's a minimally invasive device, and um, you know, technically, uh, that is just orienting a capsule like that is basically a solved problem in the community. Um, so, that kind of thing is ready to go, and there's medical approval uh, considerations for anything that's going to go into the body, and that may be the, the, the biggest hurdle and the biggest unknown for how long it will take to, to get things into use with real people. All right. Thank you. Great. Thank you. And that's all for today's episode. As always, there's plenty more to discover on our website at robohub.org. And if you would like us to cover a specific topic or have a suggestion for an interviewee you'd love to hear from, just let us know. You can email our director, Abate, at abate.de.mey at robohub.org. We'll be back in two weeks' time with a brand new episode. Until then, goodbye.
Surgery with Robohub, the podcast for news and views on robotics.